It's good to have you. Hey, if you are a new member to the church, thank you for your commitment to the church and saying, hey, uh, I want this to be my church home. I want the people around me to know that. I want the, the pastors, the elders, the, deacon, the deacons to know that and to make that commitment to, uh, to the Lord, to the church, to one another. And I just want to welcome you as well. I know there's a, a rather large number, 60 plus of you who, who committed this, this time around. And, and just a reminder to me, just the faithfulness of God. Uh, if you just open up the Word of God and, and teach the Bible, um, people want that. And they want to hear from the Lord on a weekly basis. They don't want to hear uh, experiences from pastors anymore. They want to hear the truth. And, and really, that's what we're about is teaching you the truth. And in this morning and last week, we talked about in, in regards to persecution. You say, Joe, why do you go so slow through the Bible? It's because I want to make sure that you're equipped with the foundation so that when you go through suffering and hardship, you already know what to expect. And so we're laying a foundation here. You may not be going through hardship or persecution right now. You may not be going through difficulty right now, but I'm told, and we're all told, according to Job, that as sure as sparks fly upward, so man is destined for suffering. And so what we're doing uh, on a weekly basis is we're digging down as deep as we can into the Word of God to lay a solid foundation in our lives so that when difficulty and hardship comes, we're prepared as much as we can for it. Um, and I want you to be dependent on the Word of God. I don't want you to be, be dependent on me. I don't want you to be dependent on anybody else but God and His Word. And so we take our time going right through, the, through verse by verse we chew on it as much as we can, soak it up as much as we can, digest as much as we can, because this is what we need, right? So open your Bible up to 1 Peter 4. Some of you are there. Some of you are like, all I have to do is just hold my Bible like this, and it just opens up there, because you keep pressing into it every single week. And uh, we are in this section here on suffering, talking about suffering, talking about being persecuted for our faith. We opened it up last week talking about that, but I just want to read the passage for us to give us a runway here as we jump back into it. We're not going to finish this section this morning. Uh, we'll finish it hopefully next week. I make no promises about any of that, but uh, let me just read for us 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of Christ. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In 1555, an English Protestant reformer by the name of John Rogers was burned at the stake in Smithfield. It was done by a woman by the name of Queen Mary, or also known as Bloody Mary. 
And she did so to set the example to the rest of England. John Rogers was a martyr for his faith, for preaching the true gospel of salvation by faith alone. And he encouraged his church to beware of the pestilence of popery, idolatry, and the superstition of Roman Catholicism. Before John Rogers' execution, he was asked to recant his belief and his evil opinion of the Roman Catholic sacrament, but he utterly refused and said this, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. And on February 4th, 1555 in Smithfield, Rogers was burned to ashes. And it was told this, that Rogers would wash his hands in the flame as he was burning. Just before that, he would be taken out of the Newgate prison and uh, sent down the road, walking by his church. The congregants would come around him as he was walking to the place of his execution in Smithfield. And it says this, that all the people were wonderfully rejoicing at his faithfulness with great praises and thanks to God. In the crowd was his wife and 11 children, 10 of whom he had met, one who was born while he was in prison and he had never met his last child, just a baby. He had asked to meet, her on the, meet, him, meet the child on the way, but it was refused. It is told this of Rogers at his execution that the burning of his own flesh and blood could not move him, but he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and the fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is also said this, at his execution, the greatest part that the people took such pleasure is that they were not afraid to make many shouts of encouragement to strengthen his courage. Even his children assisted in, comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if he had been led to a wedding. Think about that. The cheers and excitement of all around him was as if he was going down the aisle of his own wedding encouraging John Rogers in his faithfulness, rejoicing in the fact that he would be counted as a martyr for standing for his faith and for Jesus Christ. Last week, we started talking about persecution and the persecution of a believer. And we talked about it last week, and it says in verse 12 that we are to not be surprised at a fiery trial when it comes upon you. We knew this, and we talked about this, that persecution is happening in America to some degree. We know that it is not like some of the other countries around the world where Christians are still being killed for their faith on a daily basis, but we know that there has been an uptick in persecution here in America, persecution against churches, persecution against Christian employees, freedom of religion. Peter is no stranger to persecution himself as he was writing in the time of, of Emperor Nero who hated Christians. The recipients of this letter understood persecution. They understood that on any given day they could be persecuted for their faith. And what Peter does here is he's been talking about persecution 
all the way back from, from verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 6 and all the way through down to chapter 4 now in verse 12 to 19, is he now gives us one final in-depth look at how Christians are to respond to persecution. How are we to respond biblically to persecution? And number one, we said this, do not be surprised when you suffer. Meaning this, expect suffering to happen. Expect persecution to happen. It is now and has always been part of the Christian life. It has always been part of the church. All the way back from the early church in Acts, which we'll look at a little bit, there has always been persecution for the believer. It should be expected, and it's no different today. If you are a faithful Christian living for Christ, standing for, for Jesus Christ, standing for the faith, standing for truth outside of these four walls and in the world, then you should expect to be persecuted. I commented last week on, on four different places that the Christians should expect to be persecuted. One, because of theological reasons, because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. We will be persecuted for believing in the exclusivity of the gospel. There's economical reasons for this. We saw in Acts that, that, that economically that Christians, uh, according to the, to the world, believe that Christians are hurting the economy, that they could get fired from their job or lose their job or get even ran out of the city. That's biblical. There's political reasons. There's social reasons. And Christians should expect to be persecuted. Let me give you another one. Number two is this. How do we respond to persecution? Number two is this. View suffering as testing. View suffering as testing. Look at the language that is used here. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The language continues of expectation. And Peter says this of the fiery trial that it is to refine their faith. The word there, fiery ordeal or fiery trial, it means literally ignition or burning. It pictures the act or condition of being on fire, and figuratively it's used here by Peter to talk about calamity or suffering or trials. So when trials come into your life, then it is right to view it as the Lord testing your faith. John Piper says this, says, faith does not flourish when it lies untested. It atrophies when it goes unexercised and eventually it dies. So when God loves us with a saving love and gives us saving faith, he commits because he cares for us to inject our lives with various trials to train, grow, sweeten, strengthen, and mature what matters most in us. Our various trials in this life are not superfluous to our enduring in faith, and they are not just threats to losing our faith. They are one of God's essential means through which he preserves the faith he has given us and keeps us as his own. So again, it should be expected this. That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that God is going to test your faith. He's going to test it first to see if it's genuine. 
He's going to prune the life of the believer so that there can be more growth. He is testing for authenticity. And this should not be a surprise to us that God would do this. Anytime you want to know if something's real, what do you do? You test it. Think of a diamond. You want to know if the diamond is real, what do you do? You test it. If you're a teacher and you want to know if the student has learned all the things that you've taught them, what do you do? You test them to see if their knowledge is genuine. If you want to see if a $100 bill is real, you test it. If you want to know if a precious pearl is real, what do you do? You test it. If you want to know if a believer is genuine in their faith, what does God do? He tests it. Should be no surprise. This is the fiery furnace of suffering in our lives. And we need to understand this too, as the language here would, would indicate this, that persecution, listen closely, persecution is ordained by God. It's under the sovereign control of God and the power of God by the will of God. Okay, let's just make sure we're clear on this. God doesn't just allow suffering and persecution. God ordains suffering and persecution. It's not just allowed by him. He ordains it in your life. He plans it in your life. In fact, the, the word there, you, you could underline it if you'd like, were happening. It's an interesting verb there that's to use there. It means to fall by chance. In other words, persecution and trials don't just happen. They, they don't just happen in your life as if it was random. Like, oh, that just kind of just happened all of a sudden in my life. I don't know where that came from. It, it's not an accident. It, it, in fact, it's the opposite of that. It's God's perfect design for your life. It's ordained by God, designed by God. And the purpose of it, according to Peter here, is that he is testing you to see if your faith is genuine. And not only does he put it in your life to prove uh, the authenticity of your life, he puts it in your life then also to prune you. And so we understand this, church. Listen, anybody can be a Christian when things are going easy. Man, we love Jesus when he gives us whatever we want. We love God when things are going great. I mean, being a Christian is wonderful. Look how, look how blessed my life is. Look how, how wonderful my life is. And, and Christianity is easy when everything's going good. But at that moment that God tests you, at the moment when he turns up the fire in your life, you've got to make a decision. Do I really believe in God or not? Do I really trust him through this? Do I really believe that he is sovereign over all things? Do I really believe that he is the one that is going to see me through this difficulty, see me through this persecution? He wants to know if you really trust him. In Romans 8, 28, it says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to His purpose. And I want you to understand this about the testing. God knows your heart, right? God doesn't need to test you so that He can say, hey, I wonder if this one really believes in me or not. No, God does a transformation of the heart. You want to know who the testing's for? It's for you. It's for you to know. The testing comes so that you would know your authenticity. You would know if you're genuine. You would know if it's real. So the trial is actually for you. It's for your good. And it's for God's glory. And God is sovereign over it. I love what Warren Wiersbe, a, a, a pastor back, back in the day, the day is different for everybody, I guess, but this is what he says. God has never promised that we would miss the storm, but He has promised that we would make the harbor. When God puts His own people into the furnace, He keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much. Don't you love that? He knows how long you need in this testing, and He knows how high to turn on the flame. And his hand never goes off the thermostat. His eye is never off of you in the midst of it. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says this, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. Here it is. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of, of escape that you may be able to endure it. And Peter is reminding his, his writers, his, or excuse me, his listeners again, as he, as he said to them already in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, that when you are going through trials for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by them. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it says this, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Lord will put you through that testing so that you will see His faithfulness in your life as you endure through it and to see the genuineness of your faith. The third response is this. When persecution comes in your life and you're suffering as a Christian, number three is this, rejoice that you are identified with Christ. Rejoice that you are identified with Christ. When persecuted for your faith, instead of being surprised, we are to rejoice at the privilege that we are identified in the sufferings of Christ. Look what it says, there's a contrast but instead of being surprised, we are to rejoice. Instead of being shocked that, that, that Christians don't belong in this world, we are to rejoice in our identity with Christ. Rejoice in the sufferings of Christ, that you suffer along with Christ as Christ did. In fact, two times here, it uses the word rejoice in this sentence. It says rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also Rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 
And the word there, rejoice, is actually better translated this, keep on rejoicing. Continually be in the act of rejoicing over and over and over again. It's not like, hey, okay, I spent one day rejoicing in this trial. The rest of the time I can mope around because I actually rejoiced that one time and I lived in obedience to Scripture. Now the rest of the time I can live miserably. No, it's saying this over and over and over again. You keep on rejoicing in the fact that you identify with Christ. That the suffering that Christ went through, you're going through the same suffering as you are insulted for being a Christian. And you carry those sufferings together and that in Christ together, you are bound with Him. So it says, this word here, it's a present imperative, it means this, make a personal choice to rejoice means this every day you have to make the decision how am i going to handle this suffering how am i going to handle this persecution i'm going to wake up today and i know it's going to be a hard day i'm going to wake up today i know that as i go into the office today i'm not going to be the favored one in the office today i wake up today maybe in my family maybe i'll be amongst friends and today i'm going to stand for christ and and today may be the day that i'm going to suffer but i'm going to make the choice right now i'm going to rejoice in that suffering today I'm going to keep on rejoicing in that. Why? Because it identifies me with Christ. I share in the sufferings of Christ today. I'm not rejoicing necessarily in the testing that God's given to me, but I'm rejoicing in the fact that this identifies me with my Savior. Because I'm taking a stand for the truth of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ did. And notice what it says there. It says this, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Or this, to the degree that you share. Meaning this, and I find this fascinating, meaning this, those who suffer most have more intense reason to rejoice than those who suffer little. The more you suffer for Christ, the more you have reason to rejoice. We share in the same sufferings of Christ. Christ's suffering obviously led to atonement. Christ's suffering obviously led to redemption. Our suffering has no atoning value, no redemptive value, but nonetheless, it is valuable. In Colossians 1.24, the Apostle Paul said this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. In Romans 8, 17, he says this, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We suffer with Christ so that we can be glorified with Christ. We can't just think that, hey, we're in Christ. Now I get to just enjoy the blessings of Christ without enjoying the humiliations of Christ. Part of being in Christ is that you enjoy all of who Christ is, which means the sufferings of Christ as well. It tells us why. There's a purpose clause there. Why? That you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Peter now points his readers 
to the return of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. We rejoice now so that we can rejoice in heaven. We're glad now so that we can be glad in heaven. And so the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, it says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Then Paul, Paul says this, For our light and momentary affliction. Yeah, being shipwrecked, beaten with rods, jailed, imprisoned, light, momentary affliction. What's it doing? It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we what? We look not to the things that are seen, but what? To the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this is what Peter is wanting his readers to do. He had already said this to them in verse 7. I just read it in 7 and 8. He wants them to look at heaven. He wants them to look at the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ and that with the suffering, then comes the glory. In fact, this is how the early church responded to suffering. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. All kinds of persecution was happening to the early church. Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up and preached the gospel of Christ. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The church gave birth to the church. Ananias and Sapphira didn't make it. Uh, They lied to the Holy Spirit and died. Persecution was happening to the church. In verse 17 there, it talks about the arrest then of some of the apostles Continuing to preach repentance, verse 31, the Holy Spirit gave witness to these things and whom God had given to those who obey. In verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. All right, so you got all this persecution happening. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care. What are you about to do with these men? For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined them. He was killed, and all the fellow followed were also dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census, drew away, and some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for this is a plan. For this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took this advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Verse 41, underline it. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? that they were counted worthy 
to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. You say, Joe, what's the point? The point is this, that the early church in the midst of all these beatings, in the midst of all this imprisonment, and amidst all of this persecution and suffering, what did they do? They responded by rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? They were rejoicing because they counted it worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And this motivated them to continue on and on to continue preaching and teaching Christ no matter what would happen to them. And this is what we have to remember, believer. You have to remember this, that the world is watching how you respond to persecution. The world is watching the attitude that you give in the midst of persecution. They want to know, do you really believe what you're saying? Are you really convinced that Jesus is the Lord, and they look at the fact that you stand for your faith, and they question, and they say, why, 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 why would you believe in Jesus? Just let go of Jesus. You don't have to be persecuted, and the world is saying, just let go, just let go, just let go of Jesus. Stop being persecuted. Why do you hold on so tight? And you say to them, it is a joy to suffer for Christ. I gladly rejoice in the persecution. I gladly rejoice in the fact that you notice that Christ lives within me and I'm not going to let go of Jesus. I'm going to hold on to the truth. I'm going to stand against the culture. I'm going to stand against this world because my Savior did and He suffered. Therefore, I shouldn't expect any different and it's a joy of mine. We're not going to let go. We're not going to let go of Christ. We're going to hold on tighter. We're going to count it a joy to be worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Another reformer named John Huss, H-U-S-S, he was burned at the stake in 1415. Before his accusers lit the fire, they placed on his head a crown of paper with painted devils on it. He answered this mockery by saying this, My Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake wore a crown of thorns. Why should I not then, for, this, for, the, for his sake, wear this light crown, be it ever so humiliating? Truly, I will do it willingly. After the wood was stacked up to Huss's neck, the Duke of Bavaria asked him to renounce his preaching. Trusting completely in God's word, Huss replied, In the truth of the gospel which I preached, I die willingly and joyfully today. The wood was ignited and Huss died while singing, Jesus Christ the Son of the living God, have mercy on me. And this is what Peter is saying to his, his audience here. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice and be glad. 
when his glory then is revealed. And look at verse 14. He continues on. He says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. Do you count the fact that when you are persecuted, the blessing of God upon your life? This is such an encouraging verse. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. When you stand, students, when you stand for Christ at school, businessmen, businesswomen, when you stand for Christ in the office, when you're insulted for not giving in to laughter at an inappropriate joke, when you stand for who Christ is and what He's done and the convictions that you hold to by the Word of God. Parents, when when you honor the Lord by the way that you raise your children that's different from the world and you are persecuted for it, when you are honest at work, when they want you to be dishonest at work, you are being persecuted because of your faith in Christ. You are being persecuted because you are connected to Jesus Christ. When that happens, listen, you are blessed. Say, Joe, what does that mean? It means this, that the favor of God rests upon you. The smile of God, the hand of God is over you because you share in the sufferings of His own Son, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 10. Turn over to Matthew 10 because I need all eyes on Matthew 10 to see this. Excuse me, Matthew 5, 10. All the young adults and ambassadors are going, you're you're touching Shay's territory now. He's going through this. Like, stay out of there. I can't, I can't, I tried, I can't. Pastor Shea is preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He hasn't gotten to verse 10 yet, but he told me this morning he will next week. And this is what it says. Blessed are those who are persecuted, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What's our response? What does it say? Jesus said this. What's our response? Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is what Peter is saying as he encourages his readers, when you're persecuted, when they come after you, when they insult you because of Christ, because you stand for Christ, I need you to understand this. The favor of God is upon your life. The hand of God is upon you. Your reward is great. And then he says this, because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. We have time to dig into all this as I'd like to, but let me just give you the, the, the short of it is this. This glory here that it's talking about is a reference to the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. 
It's, it's referring to the glory that was upon Stephen when he, when he saw Jesus in heaven just before he died. It's the joy that, 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 that uh, the glory that, that even Peter talks about in, in 1 Peter 7 and 8, 1, 7 and 8, which you already read. It's the Shekinah glory of God, and it, it's come to rest upon the believer, meaning this. It, it means to cause someone to gain relief or refreshment, an intermission, a rest. And what he's saying is this, is that, is that the believer, once they, when, they, when they go through persecution, when they go through suffering, the Shekinah glory of God rests upon that believer. Isn't that fascinating? That when you stand for the name of Christ and you do so in such a way that, that you understand that you share in the sufferings of Christ, that the, the glory of God rests upon you. Like when Moses was up uh, into the mountain and he had to put a veil over his face because he couldn't see God. And he took the veil up and he, and he was before God and he, he came down the mountain. He had to put the veil back over his face because the shine, the, the glory would shine so bright and re, be reflected off of Moses so bright that he actually had to cover his face with a veil. In a similar way, when we uh, endure suffering and we endure persecution, the glory of God rests upon us so that others see it within our life. It is brilliant and it is bright to them. Isn't that awesome? I don't know. I find that amazing. I can't get more excited about it. The spirit of the glory of God is a special ministry to those who suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And so when you're insulted for the name of Christ, know this, know that you're blessed and that the Shekinah glory will rest upon you when you are persecuted without complaining. This is why the martyrs could sing praises when the match was lit and thrown onto the wood and they could sing praises to God. Why? Why could they do that? Why in the face of death? Could they do that because the glory of God was upon them because they were considered blessed by God? Let me give you one more then. Number four. Then we'll be done. Suffer for the name of Christ, not for doing evil. And just so we're clear, church, not all suffering qualifies for God's blessing. <laughs> not all suffering qualifies for God's blessing. We can suffer for righteousness' sake. And Peter talked about this already in this unjust treatment. But we could also suffer by self-inflicted persecution. Self-inflicted persecution. The kind of persecution that comes upon us because of our sin. The kind of persecution that comes upon us because of our selfishness. And Peter knew this. Peter knew about sin. Peter knew that these receiving this letter, reading this letter for the first time, when they hear that, that, that they were being attacked, that they were going to want to attack back. When they hear that a brother or sister in Christ has been killed, they're going to want to attack back and, and kill back. Peter understood the desire for sin. Peter understood our, that we were prone to sin. Peter himself, of all people, understood what it meant to be ashamed of the name of Christ. 
And so he gives us here just a short list of ways that we're not to suffer. Look what it says. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. Okay, I think we could do that one. How about as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler? What's he doing? He, he, he's, he's arguing here from, from the greatest or the worst down to a meddler. You can start to see the progression. It's a, it's a murderer, it's a thief, it's an evildoer, and it's a meddler. You say, don't be persecuted for that. Don't be persecuted for any of those, and we understand what a murderer is. We understand what a thief is. You should be persecuted for that. If you've murdered someone, there should bring persecution. If you're a thief, that should bring persecution. An evildoer and a meddler. It's an interesting word, meddler. We don't use this word very often, but the word meddler here is defined as somebody who's watching over another person's life like a, like a mischief maker. You heard this word, a troublesome meddler. These are people who are socially always in the life of people making mischief. They're causing problems. They're, they're gossips. They're always up in, we'd say it like this, they're always up in somebody else's business and complaining about it. And this is way lower than that of a sin of a murderer, obviously, but Peter's getting that, at that exact thing. Don't, don't give anyone reason to persecute you outside of standing for Jesus Christ, even being a meddler, always being up in somebody else's business, always annoying people because you've got an opinion about somebody else's business, somebody else's life, how they live their life. I mean, this was such a, a thing back in the day that it was considered a weighty transgression in the ancient world to be a meddler in somebody else's life. In fact, one commentator said this, those who are meddlers, always busybodies, always overly concerned about the successes of somebody else's life or the way they do business or the way that they act, they would be considered pests who deserve ostracism and mistreatment. <laughs> you could get kicked out of the city for being a mischief meddler. Forgetting all up into somebody's business in an annoying way. You were socially awkward and would get removed from the city for that. Guys, don't you love the Bible? I mean, this is fascinating. And Peter's saying this. Don't give the world any reason to persecute you outside of the name of Christ. Don't be so socially awkward that you get persecuted for being a pest in somebody else's life. We can all handle meddler, we can handle thief, or we can handle murder, we can handle thief, we can handle evildoer, but now we're getting down to socially being able to be gentle and quiet of spirit, as Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 3 to the, to the wives. Being gentle and caring, not tearing into the lives of others, not tearing down the lives of others, not gossiping around the lives of others. Don't self-inflict persecution, church. God doesn't bless that life. 
God doesn't bless those relationships. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of the glory of God does not rest upon that person. And so what is Peter saying this? Peter is saying this, evaluate why you're persecuted. Evaluate why you're being persecuted. Evaluate the suffering that's in your life. Is it for the name of Christ or is it because you're bringing it upon yourself? Is it because you're a meddler in somebody else's life? But he goes on, he says this, yet if anyone suffers, what? As a Christian. He goes back to this, suffering as a Christian. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And we'll take a look at that next week. Let's pray together and commit these things to the Lord, asking him for our help. Heavenly Father, what a great reminder the Word of God is. Really, at face value, we could read that section and be encouraged and challenged. In a lot of ways, it doesn't even need a whole lot of explanation, but when we dig down into the words and the study of it and the context of it, and we gather more understanding from it, it becomes a rich treasure in our life. It's important to us, Lord, that as you have said, is for us to evaluate why it is that we're being persecuted, why it is that we're suffering. Is it something that we're doing? Is it self-inflicted persecution? Or are we being persecuted for the name of Christ? Lord, help us to understand in ways we're falling short in that area. Lord, I do pray for us as a church that as persecution and hardship comes, that we would not allow it to discourage us or to overwhelm us, but that we would as Peter has exhorted us to do all throughout the letter to rejoice in it. Why? Because it means that we share in the sufferings of Christ. We're identified with our Savior. What joy that should bring our hearts. What encouragement that should bring us. And motivation to count it worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And Lord, help us, continue to help us not to be surprised by this. You have such a perfect plan for all of us. You have a great plan for the church and how you're going to use each one of us in this world and in the midst of darkness. You're going to use us to be a light in this world and in, and in being a light in this dark world, that means that there is going to be persecution. And so, Lord, help us, give us strength and give us courage that comes from the Holy Spirit. And may the Shekinah glory of God rests upon us each and every day. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.